When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Be a follower of Jesus is to be radical, in the best sense of that word, not left or right. Radical for the cause of love, which is the most subversive and the most redemptive force in the universe. Can't help thinking that it's never gonna change. Wondering how to fake it another day Seems like we're all unheard Way down by the heartless words Same thing Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson. And uh, I'm here with you again uh, in 2020 with another episode. And so I consider that a win. I think this time last year, uh, we hadn't even come out with one episode. So uh, we're, we're doing great, guys. We're doing great. Um, I'm really proud of uh, us. Anyway, great episode. Um, really excited to share this one with you. Um, this one's been a long time coming. So we tried to get uh, the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers on uh, last year, and schedules just didn't quite align. Um, so it worked out this year, and actually... <laughs> Uh, this was our second go-round. Uh, the first episode uh, we recorded, um, we had a weird software file glitch situation. I don't know what happened, but we lost the file, and I was very sad. That's only the second time in the history of our podcast that's ever happened. The first time was literally the first week uh, we were recording when Adam's computer crashed. So uh, I don't pretend to know what I'm doing when it comes to computers, but alas, we got him back. And it worked out pretty well because um, initially the the book that really turned me on to his work uh, came out in 2015, and and so um, it just so happened that he had a new book coming out, and it will have been out for about a month now. Uh, his new book is called Saving God from Religion, A Minister's Search for Faith in a Skeptical Age. Uh, terrific book. Um, can't recommend it enough. Uh, he definitely is one of those who I know we've mentioned before, great scholar, um, great research, great scholarship, but also, um, very accessible writing. Um, so even though he covers some, some pretty heavy theological topics, um, it's just, it's very easy read. Um, so some of the things he, he, he covers in the new book, um, what, is, what does it mean to be made in the image of human beings? Um, he gets into science. If, if, you, uh, if you like some of our more science-based episodes, uh, he digs into quantum physics a little bit. Um, you know, the, the nature of sin we talk about briefly, but definitely more in the book uh, for sure. Um, and faith is trust, not belief, uh, which is a big one that, that we've kind of touched on before. So uh, love this book, had a great conversation with him. And uh, so I think you guys are going to like this one. Before we get there, though, the band this week is a band called Attaboy. 
Um, they were nice enough uh, to let us use their music. Uh, and so if you like the music on the podcast, as always, we'll have the links uh, to their social media and the songs that we used in the show notes. So uh, please go out and support them. Um, as always, uh, you can find everything at our one-stop shop uh, on our website, www.thedeconstructionists.com. Uh, there you can check out our merch store if you're interested in a t-shirt or a mug or a pint glass or whatever, or if you just want to read our blog, uh, our blog is, uh, is located on our website as well. And, uh, uh, all of our current and past episodes are available, uh, to stream directly from the website. You can connect with us, uh, on social media right through the website there. And, uh, and if you want to support us, uh, you can uh, find our, our a link to our Patreon campaign on there as well. So, um, and that's, I think, it. Yeah, yep, that's it. So uh, without further ado, uh, we'll get into this week's podcast. And then, of course, we're getting closer to episode number 100 and can't wait to, to share who that guest is going to be with everyone when we get closer. So thanks again for supporting and uh, continue to listen. Um, if you like what we're doing, if you're new to the podcast, if you've been listening for a while, um, we've really grown just purely by word of mouth. So, um, tell someone, you know, share it with someone who you think might benefit. And, uh, and, uh, if you really want to help us, uh, gain exposure, one of the easiest ways to do that is to leave us a five-star review on iTunes that helps, uh, gain exposure and, uh, helps us get out to, to more people. So, Thanks again, and without further ado, Robin freaking Myers. Gotta find a better way. All right, welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. We have with us today uh, Reverend Robin Myers. Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure, John. So um, I love your background. Again, uh, I always I, I have an ongoing joke where uh, we have a a running series as um, uh, picked out or selected by my dad, who's a who's a Lutheran pastor and, and feeds me books. So um, you would be part of that series, I think. So um, <laughs> <laughs> so he sent me uh, spiritual defiance, building a beloved community of resistance, um, and, and I know that's a, a slightly older book for you. It came out in 2015, I believe. Um, and you've, right. you've got a new one that around the time of this podcast uh, airing will be out uh, in stores. So um, definitely want to talk about that. But before we get into all of that, you have a really unique backstory in terms of um, your journey and uh, in the state in which you have or, or rather had. You just um, uh, we talked about this last time you had just retired, but you started a church. So yeah, talk- well, I, I was at I was at Mayflower United Church of Christ. For 35 years, uh, I didn't actually start it, but it was a very small congregation when I became minister of the church in 1985, and it um, I left it a fairly good, strong, medium-sized church, about 600 members, and uh, a lot of unique sort of social gospel, uh, justice-oriented ministries in what is probably the most conservative state in the country, although Idaho would argue with us about that, whatever. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm a UCC pastor, grew up in Kansas, grew up in Wichita, Kansas, and went to seminary at Phillips and met the great Fred Craddock, and, in addition to some other wonderful uh, teachers, and sort of became an unapologetic 
advocate of progressive Christianity, and that's been sort of my defining mission. Um, and I did just retire from the church where I've been in Oklahoma City for 35 years. I preached my last sermon three weeks ago, um, and and really now I'm, it's time for me to turn my attention to traveling and lecturing and doing the things that are being asked of me more and more often, and I really consider that a form of ministry too. But I will always think of myself as a parish minister, and I will always be proud of what we accomplished at Mayflower. So one of the things that you talk about in, in relation to to this church that, that you helped um, uh, kind of generate, you know, uh, more, more and more uh, congregants, um, one of the things you talk about in the documentary that we'll, we'll touch on a little bit here is uh, you got some pushback because you had said, and I love your definition of this, and I'd love you, uh, love for you to to mention that um, here is you wanted to start a liberal church, but you had a very specific definition for what you meant by that. Right. When I first came to meet with the search committee in Oklahoma City, someone said, "I wish you would quit using that word liberal because, well, we just don't like it. It's actually an epithet." in Oklahoma. It's a religious and political um, epithet. All you have to do is call somebody a liberal or what they call the L word in Oklahoma, and uh, you're in trouble. And I said, well, I think it's a great word. I think it means open-minded, tolerant of divergent opinions, and exceedingly generous. So I would like our church to be liberal in that sense. (laughs) This woman said, no, I still don't like it. And I said, "Well, well, what would you, what word would you prefer that I use? And she said, conservative. So that was my, that was my introduction to Oklahoma. That That's so interesting, especially um, because I'm assuming that happened, you know, back, back when you first took over back in the eighties. And yet right. here we are in this political climate today where those are almost depending on which side of the aisle you stand on almost uh, akin to a curse word. Oh, it is. There's no, it's, it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse. And in, in, yeah, I, I, this was 1985 that this happened. But in Oklahoma, as in many parts of the country, that word simply is used without explanation or definition to define someone as, you know, uh, morally um, corrupt, incorrigible, uh, untrustworthy, um, probably uh, a communist or a socialist, which are really one and the same for many people. Um, I, it's, it's strange because American democracy was a liberal experiment, and it remains, in the best sense, a liberal experiment. But no one really knows what that word means anymore. John, nobody knows what lots of words mean anymore. We don't bother to, to be critical in our thinking. We don't, we don't bother to educate ourselves. We're just busy, you know, tossing bombs back and forth at each other. And liberal around here where I live is one of the nastiest things you can call someone. Just call them a liberal. Yeah. yeah it, I find that astonishing because we live in a time where, like, on a, on a world scale, we have never been more um, in touch with um, information. I mean, it's, it's at your fingertips. We literally carry around tiny computers in our pockets with instant access to information, and yet we are— it's seemingly, at least in, in, in that regard, less informed than ever. Well, and, I'm, and I have some serious misgivings uh, and concerns about social media. All this technology has put all this information at our fingertips. It's also 
made it possible for us to sort of seek out people who think like we do and to live in these bubbles uh, of self-affirmation. And, and we also get to sort of sit in our pajamas and hurl insults at strangers without looking at them across the table, without making real human contact with them, which the beloved community says we ought to do. And it's, it's taking a toll on the whole country. We, we don't even know how to talk to each other anymore. And if the church is to have any kind of future, and, and I'm, I'm not saying that that future is assured by any means, we will have to put people in real physical proximity to one another, and we're going to have to talk across our differences uh, to heal this society. Otherwise, we are just going to continue to fly apart. Yeah, well, I, I want to go back to one of the things you, you said at the the beginning uh, there, where you mentioned the fact that you know this this dangerous social media, and and I would say just you know the online thing in and of itself, whether it's you know social media or you know chat rooms or whatever, you know, uh, you know Reddit or all those different things. Because you, you mentioned in, in your book, and, and this was, uh, it, it's interesting because it, it was like you kind of foresaw the future back in 2015, but <laughs> in this book. But you talk about the fact that the moral imagination has been studded, stunted by the constant onslaught of imaging through media and technology. And you had this great point in there, and I would love for you to kind of expand on that. Well, I mean, I think, I think that we are, are, and I don't know exactly which uh, quote you're referring to, but I think the advent of the visual world, the world that brings up, whether it's television or sitting in front of your computer screen or looking at your smartphone, whatever it is, we've, we've, the images are produced for us in order to create an emotive effect, to get a reaction out of us. And although that's easier, it, it also makes us kind of lazy thinkers. And we respond at this very, very primitive level to the image, which all the scholars realize now has much more effect on people than language or real conversation or the nuances or ambiguities of human thought. If we just see an image that is that has negative connotations, we react automatically. And all of the products are sold to us this way. Politicians are sold to us this way. Everything is a product being sold through sort of in, instant emotive images. That is stunting the brain of, of human beings, and it's also keeping us from talking to one another in authentic ways about all the things that we believe or feel or do. And, and so the, the empathic imagination is being, becoming stunted. I think that's probably what you're referring to. Um, we have to imagine what it's like to be the other person. And we have a harder and harder time doing that because the people out there who want to sell us something are not interested in nuance. They're not interested in subtlety or ambiguity or complexity. They're interested in knee-jerk reactions that will get us to hate people or love people, just as they want us to hate certain products or love certain other products. Everything is a zero-sum game now. Um, are you with us or are you against us? Uh, are you saved or are you lost? Are you one of us or are you one of them? Everything is, is, is simply divided in what's become a hyper-polemic world. 
And that is spiritually debilitating. Uh, what we're supposed to be doing is actually looking for ways to bridge the divides between human beings. Meanwhile, the society is exacerbating the divides between us so they can sell things and they can make money and they can exercise control over us. Because I can tell you, and you know this already, and so do your listeners, fear is the greatest motivator of them all. Uh, if you can keep people afraid of some nondescript other out there, if you can identify the enemy and then frighten people about the enemy, you have enormous control over them. What we're supposed to do in the church is pray for our enemies, not be given help in hating them even more. And if the church can't figure out how it is an alternative community, a truly subversive alternative community of non-compliance, you're, you're right about spiritual defiance. That was in 2015. And I talked about resistance before the word resistance became a household word after the 2016 elections. The essential quality of faith, as is the message of the Bible from start to finish, is wherever the empire deals death and indignity, we are supposed to resist on behalf of people who don't have the power to do it without our help. That, that was a very long, perhaps, perhaps convoluted answer to your question, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> Spot on. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. I just, I'm just terror. I'm. I think your listeners probably know that we are trembling on the edge of the loss of our democracy because we are losing our truest and deepest values. Nobody really cares if anything is true anymore. All they care about is, will it sell? Will it? Can we use it to win? Um, we're we're involved in only the third impeachment inquiry in our nation's history. And I can't see that truth has anything to do with anything. Just like in the church where 82% of evangelicals voted for Trump, who is in fact, whatever else one thinks about him, an answer to the question, what would Jesus not do? Yeah. Um, and and, I, and I, I know that evangelicals are having a kind of dark night of the soul, at least some of them, are wondering what they did. Well, what they did is what we are all being trained to do, which is go cheap for power. You, you really can talk about character and morals and all that being important. When Clinton was president, evangelicals said, well, he's a pretty good president. He's a pretty smart guy. And actually, we've had peace and prosperity under Clinton for a number of years, but that's not really the important thing. What really counts to all of us who are Christians is a person's moral character. And since his moral character is obviously flawed, and it was, uh, we reject him. We would never vote for him. Well, that has been turned completely on its head in the election of Donald Trump, who puts Clinton to shame in terms of his immoral activities and behaviors, and is proud of it, brags about it. Did you ever think that you would hear a, a modern American president say the things that President Trump has said about women and about African Americans and about our immigrant sisters and brothers and still get elected? 
No, because he realized there was this this sort of pent up frustration about all of the progress that had been made for gay people and for people of color and for women. And he knew that there was a backlash waiting to happen that could be tapped into. And he tapped into it. I mean, one has to give him credit for for knowing that there was this tremendous reservoir of frustration, particularly among less well-educated men who have been struggling financially. And a lot of other people who really weren't happy to see same-sex marriage come along, they really suspect that progressive churches are kind of watering down the gospel. Uh, I think the exact opposite is true. I think progressive churches are the only ones taking the gospel seriously, because following Jesus is a pretty dangerous activity. We can talk more about that if you want. But, you know, I, I just, it's just like the, the editor for Christianity Today, who said he should be removed, and Trump said, well, that's a left-wing radical magazine. Well, I grew up thinking Christianity Today was far to the right of the Christian century, which I read always and still read. But I have such admiration for this man saying what he believed was really true. It's like reading 1984 again, which I just had my students do at the university. Some Some of them had never read it. And they said, oh, my God, you know, this stuff is happening. Uh, I said, you know, this was the best-selling book in 2017, yeah. right after the election, because Big Brother is is in your pocket. And when you call Alexa and you ask her to turn on the lights or do something for you, that's really cool. But do you know that Alexa is listening to you all the time? Just like in 1984, the telescreens not only showed you propaganda – but they were listening in on all your conversations. They were watching you. It was a two-way device. We're there. <laughs> we, yeah. are, we, are, we are there. And, and that, that doesn't mean human beings don't have the capacity to turn and go another direction. But we are running out of time. And whatever I can do in my work, in my preaching, in my writing, to get people to resist, to resist on behalf of the future – of our grandkids. I have three granddaughters. I look at what we're doing to the planet. It breaks my heart. Um, I drive an electric car. I have panels on my roof. I made Mayflower into the first solar panel or the first solar powered church in Oklahoma. Oh, wow. We're we're the first self-declared sanctuary church in the state of Oklahoma. We, We have done a lot of things that are outside the box. But the only reason they seem outside the box to people is that nobody's really read the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I mean, if they, if they did, it would be pretty obvious <laughs> that to be a follower of Jesus is to be radical, in the best sense of that word, not left or right, radical for the cause of love, which is the most subversive and the most redemptive force in the universe. Oh, I love that. So I want to I want to continue talking about this thing that you brought up. But I think we've called on the podcast the the kind of corporatization of the Western Church, and this idea that you know it's more important to to grow your church to the you know you you want thousands of members. You got to have all those butts in the seats, and and you have to uh, you know have, have the best band and and the best graphics. And it's really about this package that you're trying to sell. It seems like, and you have this quote. 
that was just spot on in, in spiritual defiance where you said, we mean well, of course, we sing our hearts out, we pray long prayers, but none of it can fi- finally compensate for the fact that as a change agent, we have all but disappeared. And that seems even more true today to me watching at least the political environment than it probably did even in 2015. Yes, the mega church is is the selling out of the soul of Christianity in a consumer culture. Um, it would probably be better for the church to be small and devoted and um, um, subversive and committed to doing so sort of, sort of to being the leaven in the loaf of the empire, rather than for these churches to duplicate all of the marketing strategies of the empire they're supposed to resist. And that this simply makes no sense. And you cannot be a big, successful mega church and say anything prophetic or anything controversial. What, what the first, the first person to go in the mega church in reality is Jesus. You can't let him anywhere in the room. Norman Vincent Peale, yes, all the power positive thinking people, of course, the people who know how to market. Uh, Christianity like it's some kind of a product. We do this in the name of somebody who had 12 disciples and was killed and did not throw off the Roman Empire and was not the Messiah that anyone was expecting and, and formed underground communities of resistance to sort of Roman family values and elevated women and people who never fit into the orders of life who had nothing and who were finally told that they were somebody, because, you know, the essential theology of my church and my ministry has been very simple to express. Either all of us matter, or none of us do. Hmm. Now, a cynic would say, well, probably none of us do. You know, life is hard, and then you die. (laughs) I, I get it. I get it. But the most hopeful thing that can happen today is for someone to be told that they matter, that they are worthy. They don't have to earn that. We used to call that grace, redemption, whatever you want to call it. But we didn't tell them that they were they were to become part of some sort of pop movement in the culture that glorifies the ego of organizational people who are building these massive structures that have virtually nothing to do with Christianity. They have it's not that they don't do good things. They give people a place to gather. They tell people to lead disciplined lives and work hard. But the problem is they they distort the gospel by turning it into a kind of product. And they ask people to believe things that probably they know are not true in order to get rewards they doubt are even available. And I think that's intellectually dishonest. Um, I never have told people what happens to them when they die. I don't know who's going to heaven. I don't know if there is a heaven. I certainly don't think there's a hell. But pastors need to say more often when someone says, what happened to, where is Johnny who killed himself? Where is he? I would say, I don't know. And I don't pretend to know. And you know, John, it's amazing how often in my own ministry, when someone has asked me a question I couldn't answer, and I said, I don't know. This just just relief came over them, and they said, nobody who's a religious professional has ever told me they don't have all the answers. Yeah, well, never. I don't, <laughs> I don't have all the answers. I'm looking for them like everyone else, but I, I certainly don't 
don't have them. And we can come back to this when we talk about the new book, because it's a book about God. And absolutely nobody has that information. So anyway. Yeah, that's I mean that's and that's a common theme that we we've noticed in, in a lot of churches. It's this inability to admit that we simply don't know. It, it, we we tend to look and maybe that's part of our our fault, you know, in expecting our religious leaders to always have the answer, but that that's a rarity. Most most pastors would never probably admit that. I, all I tell them is I I know that love is all there is. I mean, love is all there is in, you know, Bill Coffin, William Sloan Coffin Jr. from Riverside used to say that. Love is all there is in this beautiful, terrible, wonderful world. And the only thing that can save us, if you want to talk about being saved, is unconditional love. There is no more powerful force. There has never been a more powerful force. And no army, no empire, no doctrinaire preacher who's going to tell you everything you need to know to get you saved has anything that can compare to love. And if we could get back to that somehow and really make make it manifest, instead of trying to build these institutions that are quote-unquote successful in the eyes of the world, um, I, I would like the church to go underground again. I wrote a book called The Underground Church that came out in 2012, before spiritual defiance, in which I argued that the mark of a Christian is that he or she is is subversive in the best sense of that word, and I used the 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 the, 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 probably the world's shortest parable: the woman who took leaven and hid it in three measures of meal until it was all leaven. That's a that's a profound. It sounds like a harmless thing. Oh, she just put some yeast in, the bread's going to rise, and we're going to serve it at the ladies' guild. But actually, since leavened bread, the idea of leavening was a metaphor for moral corruption among the Jews. They don't, they don't celebrate the feast of the leavened bread, but the unleavened bread. And there's many scriptural references to how negative the connotations are about leaven. Well, here's a woman. That's a scandal. A woman is the agent. She hides it. She does something subversive in her kitchen, if you will, and then just waits until yeast works its miracle on bread, but also, as we all know, makes it rot. That's why they took unleavened bread, because it, it had longer shelf life, right? And they were, they were on the run. Um, that little parable, which was explained to me so beautifully by members of the Jesus Seminar— which I joined 15 years ago out in California, and I started running around with Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. Oh, man. <laughs> just, just amazing people who opened the radical nature of the text to me as I had never heard it before. I had no idea how many sort of secret codes there are in the New Testament that are about resisting without getting killed. And that None of us want to die. I, I would prefer not to be crucified like most ministers, but I, I have no option not to resist. You know, when they put kids in cages on the southern border last summer and the summer before, any Christian, I don't care what your theology is, what you think happens to you after you die, that is not okay. Kids in cages is not okay. And every preacher should have gotten up and said that in her pulpit, or they should 
they should turn their robes in and, and do something else. Yes, yes. I, I, and, and that brings up, actually, you, uh, <laughs> you, you brought up my next question here. And, and I think I was going to ask, um, what role does the preacher play in all this? Because you say in that book, you have this really great quote, um, and, and it's um, surrounding the idea that uh, it's become this game of playing it safe to, as to uh, offend no one. And, and so right. you have this great right. quote that I love, um, offending no one in the pulpit virtually guarantees that you will also inspire no one. Because mediocrity is the devil's bargain. Right. Um, all the time. Pre- preachers, by the way, on the whole, are not a particularly courageous lot. They are not risk takers. They are <laughs> institution builders and defenders. So they know if they go too far out on a limb and say something, even if they believe it, and someone gets mad and takes their pledge and leaves, which, by the way, just get used to it. It's going to happen if you do anything. The problem with that is that people very quickly understand that if you're not willing to offend them because you're telling them something you believe, they're not to trust what you say that they agree with. It's a, it's a kind of rhetorical equation. If I'm not willing to offend you. I have no right to expect you to be inspired by me either. So I've pissed off enough people in my <laughs> life to know that that who, by the way, who love me anyway, and who have told me, I didn't agree with what you said today, but I love you anyway. And I say, and I love you too. And off they go. Because when that person comes through the line and says, I was really moved by what you said today, or I agree, I know I can believe them. Because that same person had told me a week earlier, what in the hell are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) I, I like that kind of environment. I like that kind of church. And Mayflower, bless its beautiful heart, uh, and if you watch the documentary, you'll, you'll know more about it, which is really being shown all over the country. Uh, I, I gathered a bunch of people together who were not afraid. They were not afraid to do what they thought God was calling them to do in Oklahoma City, which is one of the most homophobic places on earth. It's one of the most uh, fundamentalist places on earth. It has a a sort of uh, might makes right patriotism, Mm -hmm. a sort of undue adulation of anyone in a uniform. It is the whole package that probably would have defined the Roman Empire in the time of Jesus. People have to understand that, you know, Jesus, you know, Moses comes against Pharaoh and Jesus comes against Rome, which means America has to come against, I mean, Christians Followers of Jesus now have to come against the American Empire, the Pax Americana. If we're going to if we're going to fit in with the sweep of history, we are resistors. Not just for the fun of resisting. Like, isn't it cool to be mad prophets decrying the hypocrisy of our time and all that? But wherever the empire is hurting people, or keeping people separated, or keeping them from seeing a doctor or making sure they live on the edge of starvation so they're easy to control or to sell opioids to. I mean, there is such unmitigated evil being committed in this society for the sake of greed that all the church has to do is get up and say, you know, you you unholy bastards, you you are killing people. And if and you and you're doing it acting like righteous people, 
like this is some sort of Christian nation. Actually, this is one of the least Christian nations on the face of the earth. If we were Christian, we wouldn't have the the infant mortality we have. We wouldn't have the number of uninsured people we have. We wouldn't do to the environment primarily as the number one polluter. We wouldn't be doing that. I could go down a list that would just make you sick. And then we say, oh, we love Jesus. I mean, everybody just loves Jesus in Oklahoma. The only problem is if someone showed up on a street corner or in our churches, let's say, who looked like Jesus and sounded like Jesus, they would call security. They would have him arrested, and they would accuse him of being unpatriotic and un-American. They would talk just like Donald Trump talks about all Democrats, as if you can put all Democrats in one box and call them socialists or radicals. Or I mean, good God, look at this trial. We have all the managers presenting the case against Trump. There, is a, there are two women, one African-American and one white, an African-American man. The, the eight managers actually kind of look like a cross-section of the country. And what does Trump provide for his defense? Old white men who are famous for lying on television. <laughs> yeah. For, forgive me, but I'm, this is this is a crucial moment. You know, I think historians will look back on this if we lose our democracy. And let's face it, we may very well. They will look back at this moment, this unprecedented moment, and say, "This is really when it happened." So I would ask all your listeners to not give up, but not to think that um, it's going to be easy either. Um, find yourself a community in which you can resist for the right reasons and then go out there and raise some hell. Walls are caving in, but this is not the end. I'm breaking down again. Walls are caving in, this is not the end. I love that. <laughs> um, so let's let's talk about because I think uh, you brought it up briefly there, but I, w- I I would love for you to to talk about this this incredible story uh, that you discuss uh, in the documentary. That is, um, I think we talked about last time out in theaters as we select theaters as we speak. Um, yeah. But there's this moment in the documentary where your church takes a vote uh, specifically in terms of how to. Uh, react to the issues at the border, and it was um, uh, mind blowing. I, I never like when you when you gave the three options. I was certain in my mind which way it was the vote was going to go, and I was completely wrong. Right. So so was I because I thought they would take the simple, the less radical option because they wouldn't want their two ministers to get thrown in jail yeah. and charged with felony. <clears throat> Actually, they decided to just hang us out there mm-hmm. and take the most ra- radical option available, right. which was to be a, a sanctuary church in the full meaning of that term, which means that we could, we could knowingly hide um, um, a family in the church building, or we could knowingly transport undocumented persons. But we, of course, wouldn't do that. We, If we were going to have someone live in the church, and right now we don't have living quarters in the church, we don't have an apartment in the church, so it's unfair, would be unfair to anybody to ask them to live in the church. Although there's talk of building such a facility, right now we don't have it. 
But if we were to have someone come to the church and we protected them, we protected them from deportation action by hiding them in the church, what you do is you don't really keep that a secret. You call a press conference and you tell everybody, we have a family in our church that we're protecting from deportation. Come and get them. Because it is difficult, although less so in the age of Trump, it used to be very difficult for, for immigration naturalization officials of any kind or any government official to walk into a church and take out a family. The, as they say, the optics are bad. Mm. But you don't keep it a secret. You say, we're doing this based on our religious convictions. There are seven passages in the entire Bible which condemn homosexual activity. And I say that carefully because they knew nothing about sexual orientation, only about same-sex behavior, which seemed to them unnatural and idolatrous, blah, blah, blah. They didn't know anybody could form a lifelong relationship with someone of the same sex. So, so we've grown and we've evolved, and we understand love better than we did in the first century. But you know how many passages there are in the Old Testament alone that ask us to welcome the stranger and, and the foreigner and the alien? Ninety-two. So right off the bat, I would tell my evangelical friends, if you're doing a content analysis of the Bible, uh, 92 passages to welcome the stranger, seven warning us against homosexual activity. So just do the math. And and let's let's have a conversation. Yeah, gosh. <laughs> Excuse me. I've always so, said I've always said issues like that uh, with the limited amount of references. Uh, it's it's not a theological topic I would be willing to build my house on. No, and you know we're having we're we're holding a vigil that involves many metro area clergy, and, and including the Jewish community and the Muslim community. We have a vigil every week outside an ICE office, the main ICE office in Oklahoma City. Oh, wow. And they come out and they look at us and the, the, the press has been there. They don't quite know what to make of us because we are, we are nonviolent. And they keep coming out and saying, now, is this a protest? No, this is not a protest. This is a worship service. We're actually worshiping here. It's a very short 10-minute liturgy. And we sing some songs and we talk about our immigrant sisters and brothers who are terrified. And because we're religious people, we have to care about that. We, we have to, it is like Martin Luther King said, if it's an unjust law, you have to resist it. <clears throat> so um, that adventure in, in Mayflower's history, becoming a sanctuary church and learning that there are no other sanctuary churches, publicly declared sanctuary churches in the state, was very formative for us. Um, so was doing, a, um, you know, a renewable energy. Um, we've, we've got 50 solar panels on the roof of our church, and we, we come to find out, this shocked me, that there is not another church in the state of Oklahoma with a solar panel, a single solar panel on its roof. Wow. Now, I, don't, I don't understand that. But I don't understand a lot of things. What <laughs> churches are spending their money on is parking lots and, you know, uh, coffee shops and bookstores and people doing Christian roller blading or aerobics or something, whatever that is. Um, 
every everyone wants in our culture to be entertained and to meet other interesting people and to be part of something that is visually exciting and musically stimulating. And I understand all that. I like to go to the movies. I like to go to concerts. Uh, I like to do aerobics, although I don't know what Christian aerobics are exactly. I think that's <laughs> where you don't sweat too much, maybe. But anyway, right. Right. Um, I, I don't understand this in the name of the Nazarene, you know, the the penniless rabbi from Nazareth. That I don't understand. Uh, we've got it upside down and backwards. And that's part of the reason the church is is dying, and I mean dying in a hurry. It deserves to. Well, that's a perfect segue right into your new book. And so okay. you've got you've got this new book coming out called Saving God from Religion, A Minister's Search for Faith in a Skeptical Age. And you've got this quote right off the bat at the beginning of the book that I love, um, where you're, you're talking about just that, the decline of organized religion. And you say, uh, I have I, wondered if the decline of organized religion has less to do with secular humanism and more to do with the suffocating way in which people of faith speak about that which they do not know. Yes, and, and that harkens back to our earlier conversation about, about humility by those who lead the church. Uh, I, I want to tell you, I, it took me five years to write this book. Oh, wow. And prob- probably because... I was foolish enough to pick an impossible topic. I mean, I told my wife, I said, I said, I'm going to, I think I'm going to write a book about God. And she said, Oh, that's great. Um, I'm glad you picked a small manageable topic. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> and I, so I started reading books about God and they all fell into the sort of the same two categories. They either were a, 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 a proof that God exists. And, you know, the person set out to prove God exists, and sure enough, uh, by the end of the book, God exists. Or, B, they set out to prove God does not exist, and lo and behold, by the end of the book, God does not exist. These books don't do much for me. What I'm much more interested in is not whether God exists like other things exist, because really, if we're going to be logical about it, everything that exists was brought into being by something else. It did not once exist, then it did, and it one day will not. And we're not really terribly fond of talking about God as something that once was not and one day will not be. Um, That's bothersome uh, for good reason. So I started thinking about not what I knew about God. I know nothing about God. And I say that in the first, in the preface of the book, I say, I don't know what I'm talking about. This is a book written by someone who knows nothing about the subject except that I'm a pastor and I pray to God and I hear people talk about God and I hear people invoke the name of God and attribute certain activities to God all the time. And I'm troubled by what's, what we have created in our own image. You know, the Latin phrase imago dei, made in the image of God, is precious to all Christians. What we don't talk as much about is a God that's been made in our image. And so this book takes a look at our tendency to simply project ourselves into the heavens and to create this kind of heavenly patriarch who sort of is listening to prayers and punishing bad people and rewarding good people and 
to giving land to certain chosen people, and you name it, he's a partisan. And, and it's a he, unfortunately, because that's the default pronoun, and that's ridiculous. That's as ridiculous as saying God's a woman. I, I said something in church once in a sermon like years ago. I used the pronoun she when referring to God, and there was an audible gasp that went through the congregation. And a, a woman said to me after church, you don't really think God's a woman, do you? And I said, no, but I don't think God's a man either. So I thought if we're going to miss, we should miss with our pronouns in a more egalitarian way. <laughs> <laughs> so she said, okay, fine, I, I get it. I don't think God's a thing at all that is anywhere doing anything. What I'm now interested in is the idea that we live in a kind of quantum universe of fantastic interconnection. In fact, I point out in the book that I think science, long the enemy of religion or thought to be, is now the force that leads us more toward awe and wonder than the church. The church is too busy defending its old doctrines, including things that are wrong, and science just keeps trying to understand a quite miraculous, unbelievably beautiful universe. And I, I began to wonder, because I read Barbara Brown Taylor's little book, The Luminous Web, yes. which is not one of her more well-known books, but it's my favorite, that maybe God is the fantastic interconnection that, you know, quantum entanglement, this famous experiment where they isolated two subatomic particles, they were twins. And once they isolated them, broke them apart, they were able to separate them. But when they reversed the spin of one, it reversed the spin of the other, the twin, no matter how far apart they were. And theoretically, this means that there is some kind of amazing uh, superluminal connection between quantum particles, no matter how far apart they are, which violates Einstein's theory of relativity. That's why he hated quantum physics. He hated it. He, he especially hated quantum entanglement and tried and tried and tried to disprove it, but could not. He called it spooky action at a distance. And I really am beginning to think of God in quantum terms now, if you will, as spooky action at a distance. Not that God is doing things, but that all of us are doing things, and not and nothing we do is inconsequential. There is no action we can take that does not change something, which changes something else, which changes something else, which changes everything. So God completes the action, if you will, but does not determine the outcome. We determine that by whether we choose wisely and well and out of love, or whether we choose out of selfishness and hatred, and we set loose bad cards. Karma is a good, you know, good way to put. I saw a bumper sticker. My dogma ran over your, or my karma ran over your dogma, which I thought was really, <laughs> really good. wonderful. But yeah. it's it's that it, this this is where Eastern and Western religious traditions can actually find common ground. If our God image is still the old man on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And that's the way the book starts. I have a dream that the plaster fresco of the creation of Adam, that famous fresco where God and Adam, can't, their fingers don't quite touch. It's the most famous, most parodied 
religious image of all time. But that fresco actually falls off the ceiling in the middle of the night, comes crashing to the floor of the Sistine Chapel. And some caretaker runs in and is just terrified. Oh my God, you know, Michelangelo's God has literally fallen off the ceiling. And these priests come running in. This is the way my mind works. I'm a metaphorical thinker. And they say, what happened here? What, how did you allow it? He said, I didn't do it. It's old plaster. It failed. It fell off the ceiling. It's, it's in a million pieces on the floor. And they look at him and they say, we, we will get it put back together and we will put it back up on the ceiling. And then the, the, the janitor, the simple caretaker says, I don't know if it should go back up there. And the priest says, what, what do you mean? Well, maybe God was lonely up there. After all, we're all down here. So that's how the book starts. And I make the case that in every action human beings take, they set in motion consequences that chain out across a universe in which everything is connected to everything else. And that connection is God. Now, that's going to disappoint some people because they want God to be doing things, making choices, handing out rewards, meeting out punishments. That's what we've always been told that God is. But John, that's caused many people to leave the church when someone says, well, God is responsible for everything that happens. Well, I live, I live in Tornado Alley, and a tornado comes tearing through a town in Oklahoma and can suck a baby out of its mother's arms and wrap it in a tree a quarter mile away. And then some pastor comes along, thinks that he has to say something about what God did here, and says, well, maybe God wanted your baby in heaven early. Ugh. Oh, my God. You kidding me? Um, and I think as long as we have a sort of theistic understanding of God, we're going to have these problems. So I'm just offering in this book um, another way to think of the mystery in non-theistic ways. Because personally, between you and me, most of the arguments over the last 50, 100, even 200 years have been about Jesus. But I think moving forward, a lot of the arguments in church are going to be about God. What on earth do we mean when we say that word? How, what does it mean to pray? Do we ask for things? Or do we try to access the mystery that is this, this interconnection, this, this spirit? I really think you know, the, I'm not a Trinitarian. I'm sure that shocks you. But <laughs> of the three, I'm most interested in the Holy Spirit. Because for one thing, it is without gender. It's under no one's control, which, by the way, is why it's always made the Church very nervous. Um, but the Spirit is the best definition I have of what quantum physicists call the field. The field as opposed to Newton's sort of uh, clockwork universe. The field is, you're not here or there. When you are anywhere, you are everywhere. So there is no such thing as separation. And then I got real interested in Tillich and his attempts years ago to talk about the ground of being yes. and that sin, that sin is separation. This all really is supported by the most recent findings of scientists who are actually talking more like theologians these days than theologians are. I don't pay much attention to theologians, 
But my wife reads to me out of the New York Times science section every Tuesday, and that's where I get chills up my back. Mm, yes. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned that. I remember the first time, and maybe you've seen it, um, the new version uh, that came out a couple years ago of uh, Cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah. And right. I... I remember thinking the same thing. I watched the the very, very first episode where they put the entire um, uh, history of the universe into a calendar, and they do this wonderful job with animation of of showing um, the expansion of the universe and then uh, multiverse theory, and it just keeps going out and out and out and out. And I thought, of course, you know, creation just continues into infinity, you know? Right. And how many are there? How many universes are there? I mean... Um Who's the guy that wrote the elegant, the elegant universe? He teaches at Columbia. Um, Brian, Brian Green. Green. Yeah. Brian Green said, "You know, we may be one universe, like a slice of bread, in a loaf of other universes." Now, I'll tell you that maybe that's true, or maybe it's not. And I and I can hear people maybe listening to this saying, "Well, what good is that going to do us in our everyday lives?" Well, it's going to remind us we don't know. You know what? We don't know. <laughs> and, right. and, and so not knowing, you know, the Tao says when you think you know, uh, that's when you do not know. But when you know that you do not know, that is when you know. Hmm. And I would love more Christians to take that kind of Eastern mystical approach to things. We can still talk about Jesus. I think the incarnation is the power of Christianity. I think the fact that we're centered in a person— is beautiful. It's what it's what makes Christianity powerful to me. But we don't have to act like we have all the answers. Jesus doesn't doesn't even act like he has all the answers. He doesn't he doesn't say he knows things when he's asked directly, usually cuz somebody's trying to trick him. He evades and essentially refuses to answer the questions. No one knows the day or the hour, but so why should we be afraid of that? If Jesus didn't know everything, surely we should be okay with not knowing everything, including what the hell people are talking about when they say God. God did this, said this, wants this, loves this. And, and you know, I don't believe God is in the land-grant business. If I don't think God has a chosen people. And this brings me sometimes into conflict with my Jewish sisters and brothers, who I have generally great relationships with. But I think the idea of chosenness is dangerous. Uh, if if someone is chosen, then others are unchosen. Right, right. Uh, and I don't think there's going to be peace in the world until we figure out how to solve the Jewish-Palestinian problem. I think if we don't solve that, we're just going to—it's like an oven that cooks terrorists. They just pop out of there like biscuits. If we don't, If we don't solve that, we're— we're going to go down we're going to go down the tubes and there was a time when it seemed like it was an honest effort to want to do that now that the whole two state solution thing seems pretty dead to me um and i and i know that israel is having its own internal dispute about what to do next but i i hope that my jewish friends will know how important it is how important it is that Palestinians uh, are able to have their own country and and their own place because of all the people who know the power of place, the Jewish people know it. 
So I just want them to extend the power of that to other people who also need a place. One of the things that that you talk about in the new book that I love is um, you and you have an entire chapter on it in the new book, uh, but this concept of sin, and you start by talking about the historical view of uh, on sin and how it's so often been defined as falling short of God's perfection and the guilt yeah. that's just generated by this way of thinking about sin. Yeah, that's pretty tough. I mean, if God is perfect, and that language is in the liturgies of the church— the way we talk, and expects us to be perfect. That's like a formula for, for you know, perpetual anxiety and grief and addiction. We are not perfect. We make mistakes. I don't think it's perfection that God wants from us. I think God wants from us, if one can talk about God wanting something. I think what, will, what makes us happy, what makes us whole, is not to pretend that we are separated, our actions don't really affect other people because we're special. We get to sort of have a dispensation from consequentiality, to put it in the terms of the book. And I tell a story in there about a a professor who has an affair with one of his students and really thinks that because he says all the things in the lectures about that are true and right and good— that he can sort of have this thing on the side, that because he has talked about the truth, he doesn't really have to practice the truth or be bound by the truth. Well, the world is full of people making special exceptions for themselves, and it seems to me most of the grief and sadness and heartache comes from people who think they are separate from the consequences of their actions that they're special in some way. It's not going to catch up with them. Yes, it is. It will always catch up with you. We all make mistakes. We all do stupid things. But the stupidest thing is to think that our stupid things will never catch up with us. And that's part of this understanding now I have about the way the world is put together for our own benefit. We shan't we shan't delude ourselves, John, any longer that separation itself, or at least the illusion of separation, is not the best definition of sin anyone's ever given us. Tillich talked about sin as separation. Scientists tell us there is no separation. So I've gotten fascinated by that as a spiritual concept. What if we built a whole theology around there is no separation? Because I think it's true. Well, you know, (laughs) think about how much of the Bible is about separation sheep and goats and Jews and Gentiles and the sinners and the lost. And well, okay, we observe all that kind of separation. But what is our min- our ministry, our mission is to tell people that they're not separated. They are all children of God. They all have a chance. They are all worthy. And to stop thinking of themselves as people who can do stuff, selfish stuff for their own benefit and get away with it. That's a destroyer of worlds. So in the book, I started off to write a book about non-theistic options on God, ended up kind of developing a new theology 
around the idea that there is no separation. And what would it mean to the way we lived and did church and prayed and understood God and treated one another if we believed that there is no separation? So (laughs) it's being published by Penguin Random House, which I've never published a book with Penguin Random House before. They are... um, they are the largest publisher on on the planet. They have been amazing to work with. They have made the book beautiful as an artifact. Um, and it comes out this Thursday, the 28th. Or wait, what is today? The 27th. It actually comes out tomorrow. Oh, wow. And the first, yeah, the first book signing is in Oklahoma City at a at a independent bookstore here called Full Circle Books. I'm doing a reading and a signing and a little Q&A on Thursday night. And then I'm going to sort of hit the road to do some lecturing and, and book tour stuff around the release of the book. And that's part of the reason that it was time for me to step down at Mayflower. I can't do all these things. There's not enough of me to go around. And I'm 67. And my wife said, you know, I think it's time for us to do some other things. We have three granddaughters. They all live here in Oklahoma City. We get to see them all the time. Um and I want to turn my attention now to writing and to speaking and and turn over the church that I spent 35 years in to the next generation of leadership, because there are some fine people coming along. They'll do things differently, but that's the way it is. Um, I've got a lot to do, and I'm going to do it as long as I you know, have a functioning brain in my head <laughs> and a heart that's still beating. <laughs> It's it's too funny because my mom uh, also uh, being married to a pastor, I think is is subtly trying to uh, get him to also retire. He's, right. he's sixty five, right. and she's hard. like, "Let's travel, come on." <laughs> yeah, you know it's very hard for pastors to retire. Yeah, they they don't know what they don't know who they are if they're not preaching and teaching and visiting in the hospital and stuff. I know how this feels. I'm 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 just three weeks into my retirement from a church I spent thirty five years in. And it's a strange feeling of both elation about getting to do what I want every day and wondering, who am I if I'm not doing what I used to do every day? Yeah. I think it's, I think for you, I think it's just evolved. I think you still, I think you, now you're, the church is, is uh, a much, much wider audience than probably even you uh, had ever imagined initially when you yes, first started. That's true. Uh, Mayflower is known around the world, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, So, and you know, uh, people listen to the sermons that are on the website uh, all over the country and around the world. And there are some pastors, there are some churches that are small and struggling and can't afford a a minister, so they have no preacher. So they've written to us to ask if they can just watch the sermons of the Mayflower pulpit as their sermon time. And then they send us a hundred dollars for the cost of, you know, recording them and putting them online and stuff, that's really very gratifying because because Mayflower is an unapologetically liberal church. And the fact that it has become the subject of this documentary and is helping people who didn't think they would ever set foot in a church again, that is about the most wonderful legacy I can think of to have. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you should be thoroughly proud. I, it, it comes out uh, it, very obviously in the documentary. And, um, you know, like I said, I just I love the work you're doing. The, the books are incredible. Um, can't recommend them enough. 
Um, I, I think this is what people want to hear and need to hear right now. So I just, you know, encourage you to keep up the great work and, uh, hopefully you come through Ohio on, on your tour. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll be, I'll be in your neck of the woods one of these days. And, and, uh, thanks for doing the podcast and because it does good, it probably does more good than, you know, and, uh, you know, we'll run into each other or, or even if we don't, we'll know that we're doing good work. Absolutely. I would, yeah. I'd love to, if you come through this way, I'll well, definitely, uh, it'd be a great, great opportunity to meet up. But, um, before oh, I let you okay. go, where, yeah. where can people go to stay on top of what you're up to find uh, tour dates where you're going to be, uh, yeah. promoting the book? I, well, because I have a millennial son who's 26 <laughs> yeah. and he actually knows how to build websites. He just built me a new website, which is very easy to remember. It's robinrexmyers.com. Perfect. So if people if people go to Robin Rex Myers and it's M E Y E R S RobinRexMyers dot com, there is all my stuff, my books, and all the stuff I'm up to, and there's a calendar of events where I'm speaking, what I'm doing, and people can get information about the books and about my travel schedule and just keep up on what's going on. So RobinRexMyers dot com. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, the people listening have no idea that this is actually round two. I think it was God's way of saying we can, we can do it better, you know, and I think, Good. I think we nailed it this time. <laughs> Good. All right. I'm, I'm, it was delightful to talk to you and please uh, greet everyone who could possibly care for me and we'll all just hang in there and we'll hope for the best and we'll, we'll try to be good people. That, that sounds perfect. <laughs> Thank you so All much. Right. Right. You're welcome, John. I'm running from another mistake. Searching for something. Gotta catch a break. Catch a break. Now I'm bouncing back and I'm catching my breath. Finally on track and I'm moving ahead.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 